This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Bible is a storybook. Now, when I say story, you might think of stories that aren't true. Tall tales, for example. The stories of Scripture, however, are just as exciting and thrilling as any of them. But best of all, they're true. For thousands of years, the stories of the Bible have captured the imaginations of believers. But how precisely do we fit into God's stories? Creation, the Flood, Abraham, Israel, and David. Our next faculty conference is set for January 12 and 13, 2018, on the campus of Westminster Seminary, California, here in Escondido. And we're going to explore how you and I fit into God's unfolding story of redemption and the important role of the Bible's historical narratives. Our conference speakers this year are President Joel Kim, Joshua Vanee, David Vendrunen, Brian Estelle, Bob Godfrey, and Dennis Johnson. Joining us to talk about the upcoming conference is Joel Kim. He's the new president of Westminster Seminary, California, and he's assistant professor of New Testament. He's taught New Testament here since 2005. He's a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, and he's co-editor of and contributor to Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, early in my Christian life, I was given a packet of Bible verses, which I was supposed to memorize, and some of which I actually did memorize, and that's a good thing. But Scripture is not like the Quran. It doesn't come to us as a collection of aphorisms, but as a collection of stories. Why is the difference between aphorisms and stories so important? Let me begin by pointing out that memorizing Bible verses is not a bad thing at all. It's a technique as well as a routine that many perhaps should re-engage in. I think it's a very beneficial thing for many Christians to do, to simply keep the Word in their minds and their hearts. The difficulty of these kind of aphorisms where you memorize one verse at a time is that sometimes when you take verses by themselves out of its context, you make abstract truths out of verses and you start applying these things as if these individual verses stand to give us universal truths on their own without surrounding context that limits its meaning as well as its application. Just as difficult is the subjectivism with which we sometimes receive these verses. That is, we're not asking the question, what does the author intend to say with this verse? Here, oftentimes what we end up with is what do we feel when we read or hear these verses? So while memorizing the verses are important practices for Christians to engage in, we need to recognize that these verses that we memorize are found within certain context in the flow of either argument and stories where it gives us a better sense of the author's intention in saying those verses in the first place. For example, Joel, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, that's God's word, and it's certainly true, and it has application beyond this particular setting. Nevertheless, this promise does occur in a particular context, and the temptation which the Corinthians were facing was that of idolatry. And so when he gives us that promise, it's in a particular context. One of the things that we have to always ask when we approach the Bible is to ask, what does the author intend to say? Not subjectively, what do I get out of the text? 
And so you're exactly right, Scott, in saying that this verse often applied to difficult situations in our lives is what we often do. Simply repeating this verse as a reminder to us that God will help us is how often it's understood. And that understanding itself is a promise that's very biblical. The question for us is that, is that what Paul intends to convey to us in this particular verse, in this particular context? Paul does have in mind the overall struggles of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church and Corinth as a city was a very difficult place. In the first century, when you say that someone is living like a Corinthian, was to indicate or perhaps even insult that individual by saying that person is living for self-pleasure and self-gain, that they are now marinating and saturated with the world around them. And to this, Paul gives him warning, simply saying, do not allow these worldly priorities and idolatries to overtake us. And this kind of command as well as exhortation is buttressed by the fact that God is the one who is faithful. And he has done this in the past. He reminds them in context that this has been God's actions throughout history, taking his people and giving them strength to overcome idolatries that were before them, even among the Israelites. It's this particular push that Paul wants to make for the Corinthians and the church in Corinth in particular. So when we talk about narratives and reading the stories of Scripture and understanding the narratives in their own context, we're really saying, let's understand the verses that we know so well and treasure and repeat to one another in their original context. So really what we're saying is keep reading. Don't just stop with that one verse. For example, you and I were discussing Romans 8.28. And again, this is a great promise from God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes when tragedies happen, this is a verse that people will quote, recite to one another. And again, in a general sense, it's true. But again, this verse has a particular context. The Bible does promise to all believers that the Lord provides. In fact, few verses after Romans chapter 8, 28, we are reminded by Paul that he who did not spare his own son— How will he not also graciously give us all things to remind us that whatever we need, perhaps not what we want, the Lord will provide as our Father in heaven. He has given us such a costly gift of the Son. Everything else pales in comparison. The point of 828, however, in terms of its focus, is not about daily provisions per se, although the Bible promises that. It's not about necessarily health, although the Lord takes care of his people. The promise there is that the Lord will bring them home. That's the whole perspective. Because right before it, it speaks of the fact that this present age, on this side of glory, we live in suffering. We live in weakness. Those are markers of those who live on this side of glory where sin is still present. And his perspective there is not that everything we ask or or want that he would give, whatever we list in a Christmas agenda items that the (laughs) Lord will send into our basket, but that the Lord promises that whatever you see around you in your circumstances, those things cannot cut us off from God's love for us. And those things cannot prevent us from being led by God until we see him without a veil, as that great hymn says. It's that promise of him leading us home is the purpose there, that this hope that we have in him of seeing him face to face is something that he will fulfill and nothing will prevent it. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
So this is an important truth that when we pay attention to the context of our favorite verses, it's not that we lose our verses. The listener might say, well, you're taking away my favorite verses that, you know, in which I find comfort. And we're saying, no, we're not taking away your verses. We're actually adding depth to them and making them even, in a sense, stronger, if that were possible, by anchoring them in the actual text of Scripture rather than taking them out of the text of Scripture and sort of recontextualizing them. Well, we are trying our best in our reading of God's Word, because that's what the Bible is, that we are understanding and discerning the mind of God through the Word revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And the question we have to come to the text with is not, what do I get out of it? But what is God saying through these human authors in terms of His truths that He's teaching to His people? So oftentimes, the struggle that we're having is that we read books, not just the Bible, from a very subjective perspective. And we're simply saying that we need to understand these verses, therefore these paragraphs, therefore these chapters and books, from the standpoint of the authors themselves, so that we can better discern the mind of God and what he intends to say to us. You've actually raised a really important point that is something of a radical point in our age. There are scholars who say, well, I am the sovereign reader. And as the reader, the receiver of the text, I get to say what the text says and what the text means and what the text can say and can mean. And uh, there's a whole school of thought built around this way of approaching texts. And you're saying that's exactly backwards. Certainly, readers do receive texts and they do read texts, but in order to receive them properly and read them properly, they must, first of all, determine what the author intended. Why is that so important? Because we believe that these are not human words. We believe that the scripture teaches that these words are the very words of God. We believe that the confessions remind us that the scriptures ought to be read according to the ways that God wants us to read them. And this is not about us. It's about God self-revealing. In order for us to see how God reveals himself, we cannot simply assume that what we feel or what we gain at the moment becomes the primary thing that the Bible intends to give. We have this in human communication a lot as well. When you and I talk, Scott, or perhaps a better example is how my wife and I often talk, and we have this misunderstanding quite a bit because we're not only selfish in our thought process, we are also... Well, hold on. You are not only selfish. Mrs. Kim, I'm sure, is never selfish. I'm going to get in trouble for this, Scott, for making specifics. I was making a general human condition case that all of us live in sin. I'm trying to help you here. (laughs) You are, you are. But that is to say, we not only speak from a selfish perspective, we also listen from a selfish perspective. We are living in sin. So we have miscommunication often in terms of what we hear and what we understand. I'd like to talk about stop signs. Yeah. Imagine if we tried this reader-dominated approach to texts, to stop signs. We have one at the bottom of our hill, and there's a street out there, a a parkway. It's a busy one, and it's uh, actually it's got a stop light now. But for years and years, there was a stop sign at the bottom of the hill. And you roll up to that thing, and uh, if you receive that stop sign to mean I can go anytime I want, bad things are going to happen, (laughs) right? So you have to recognize the authorial intent of that stop sign. 
that those letters, S-T-O-P, they could, I guess, potentially signify something else. But we know what the author of the stop sign intended, that we bring our vehicle to a full and complete stop and we wait for the signal to change before we go. And really, safety at the intersection depends on everybody recognizing the authorial intent. That's a great example, Scott. And without it, what do we have? We'd have mass chaos at the bottom of the hill. And of course, that wouldn't be good for anyone. And we wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Very true. So just on its face, it seems to me that on a regular basis, as a matter of you know universal sense perception, we all function on the basis as if authorial intent were true. I mean, when people write books saying, don't pay attention to the author's intent, they want us to pay attention to their intent, not to regard other people's intent, which I call literary vandalism. So all this is a way of getting to the question about literature, right? The Bible is a species of literature. And when we think about it as aphorisms, we lose track of the fact that God gave us stories, as one writer said. And uh, it has to be read the way literature is meant to be read. Now, as you've said, it's divinely inspired, and that makes it different from other kinds of literature, but it still comes as literature. And so there are conventions and there are genres and all of that. So your talk at the conference in January is going to be about scripture and particularly God's stories as literary artistry. So how does knowing that scripture is literature help us as Bible readers? I wonder if I can use an example to indicate the big picture issues and small picture issues that we're trying to discuss here. When we say that the Bible is a story, we recognize that beginning to the end, there is this big narrative at work. About 25 years ago, my family first visited the national parks like Zion and Bryce and Grand Canyon. I remember the takeaway. I hope no one judges me when I say this, but having just driven through these places, we simply concluded that it'd be better to see these things in pictures than actually to visit them because when you got there, things looked way too big. This past summer, our family decided to revisit those areas, but this time to spend some more time in each of the locations. So, for instance, when we're at Zion National Park, we actually walked the Narrows. Narrows is in this valley, there is this river or a creek that runs, and you have an opportunity to actually hike in the water through these crevices for miles upon miles. That probably was the most favorite part of our trip, and the kids remember it very, very well. Our project for this conference is to help people see this Bible, which seems so big. The aphorisms may be people are trying to condense things in a comprehensible bite, and oftentimes the Bible seems too big. And what we want to be able to do is to divide them into packages, not divorcing them from the other package, but simply draw the connections necessary to show them the small parts that make up the whole in order that the whole becomes much more enjoyable and comprehensible. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons. 
where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Okay, so you're giving us tools to access and understand portions of Scripture. Absolutely. And the Bible is a remarkably diverse book. It is. So you have stories, and you do have aphorisms. It's not as if Mm -hmm. there are no aphorisms. You've got Proverbs and maybe Psalms and other kinds of wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Mm -hmm. that have something of an aphoristic quality. But in the beginning, for example, Genesis 1, those are not aphorisms. That's a story of Yahweh Elohim who is explaining to the people whom he has just delivered out of Egypt how the world came into being. So help us, for example, in that concrete particular case to understand how grasping the nature of a narrative or a story helps us to understand Scripture. Well, there's several things that I think if you look at the list of topics that the conference will discuss, there are a number of ways in which this will be tackled. These are all angles, if you will, or layers that allow us to interpret a narrative better. One thing perhaps we can begin by pointing out is to say that when we refer to something as a story, especially something like Genesis 1, we don't mean it to say that it's not historical nor history. We do mean to say that it's story and it's history. But the point that we have to make is that the history being told there is not told the way, let's say, the New York Times tells it or the rise and fall of the Third Reich tells it in a very modern sense of how history should be told. And so we want to maintain that it's history, but it's being told in a narrative unique to that particular century in which it was written in a style that's comprehensible to many around it. And when you actually take something as a story, you come to realize that the story has components that are built into it. There is a way in which the story is told where this setting is presented for us to get a better sense of what the issues are and the characters are and the people are. And then you get into a continuing rise in terms of what we often refer to as the tension within the story. That is the plot that drives it. What is happening here? And are there conflicts here that need resolution? And as the story builds up even further, you reach a climax where the climax resolves the story. That is, it tells us exactly what we need to know from that narrative being told. And from that point on, conclusions and applications are drawn out. To get back to the Genesis account in particular, which comes back over and over again throughout the scriptures, here the ultimate point that we're driven to is that God is the creator and he's the king over all things. 
is the basic knowledge that is to be conveyed to us that when you see any other stories that are out there, none of those things is real. None of those gods discussed in those narratives can truly be the creator God. God as told in Genesis, is the only and the sole creator of heavens and the earth is the driving point that it drives toward. And it tells the creational narrative to get us there to that conviction. There were competing creation narratives. So Yahweh Elohim, who's, as I say, just delivered Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground, now says, now let me tell you how the world works. Right? I spoke everything into being. Nothing exists except that which I spoke into being. I said, let there be, and there was. And if you just go through, as I've been doing lately, and looking at Genesis 1, particularly, all the times that the Lord says, let there be, and then the text answers, and there was. That's remarkable, right? And just as he had sovereignly, powerfully delivered Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground by the power of his word, so he had spoken creation into existence. And as you say, the narrative moves. It moves from the beginning where there's chaos, and then at the end, there's not only order, but rest, right? The whole thing comes to a culmination with a day of rest, where Yahweh Elohim himself is said to have rested, which is a remarkable thing to say about the God who was able to speak everything into existence, who Mm -hmm. obviously isn't working literally. Genesis represents one narrative that begins the Bible itself until the close of the Bible in Revelation, where you have one big story being told. One big story of God's love for his people, where the hero here is Jesus Christ, where Jesus is presented, exalted, proclaimed, and worshipped. And what we want to be able to see from the text is how individual narratives, while telling its own story with its own exhortation, all play a role in ultimately telling the story of Jesus and presenting who he is. Taken in abstract and taken out of context, here while the individual stories may provide us with universal truths for us to know and understand and perhaps apply, they lose its proper place in the larger story being told. A story where you and I are not the hero of the story, but Jesus is told and Jesus is being exalted in those narratives. One of the words that you and I have used in this discussion is genre. Uh-huh. What is genre? Why do we talk about genre relative to scripture? Genre is a collection of writings that bear resemblances or traits that are similar to one another, whether it be style, form, or content of some things. When our children were growing up, we used to read them a book called Good Night Moon. Good Night Moon. I love that book. It is a great book. (laughs) Although, as one comedian pointed out, that book is less literary and more about children finding excuses to stay up longer. Um, Daddy, read it again. Daddy, read it again. Because it's... Really, if you think about it, it's a tale about a cow jumping over the moon and everybody saying good night. Good night from an old lady, good night from a painting on the wall, etc. Now, if you think of that particular writing and anything that resembles that, anything that begins once upon a time, are the things that children really love. And then if you compare that to any kind of historical writing, one of the things I've been reading recently, The Sun Also Rises, is a book about the historical account of the Asian theater of World War II. How we approach those two books, we could approach them exactly the same and read them as if you're either reading history 
So you're seeing cows jumping over the moon as an account of historical events, or the opposite. <laughs> you can read the kind of battles that took place in Iwo Jima as fairy tale, like cows jumping over the moon. Now you can't do that. You have to read these two things differently. And for most of us, this is second nature to us. We can mentally switch gears so that we read Goodnight Moon in a way that's different than the way we read Sun Also Rises, a military history. This is what we're. Seeing in scripture as well, through various individuals with their own experiences and styles, sixty-six books are brought together, and each book represents different style and form of writing. There's a way that we would read the Book of Revelation that's very different than the way we would read the Book of Acts, which is also very different than the way we would read the Book of the Epistle to the Romans. Here, the reason why we categorize them differently is because they are part of different genres, and so this sounds like we're arbitrarily putting grid on things, but we're not. We're recognizing the very character of the writings and understanding them the way they were intended to be understood by the authors. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, as a Bible reader, a student of Scripture comes to Scripture, what kinds of tools does a reader, does the listener need to recognize some of the literary conventions and qualities of Scripture? Well, let me give you one example in terms of a narrative that we're going to be discussing in particular. And in this case, if you look at the Gospel of John, Gospel of John brings together historical events but organized in such a way that the author wants to convey a message about Jesus Christ, so that ultimately the author of John tells us, so that we may believe who Jesus is. You see this big picture narrative taking place in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is put on trial in some ways. In fact, there's a book out there called Truth on Trial, where Jesus is put on trial, where the driving question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And you have all these witnesses that come out and tell us about who Jesus is. Sometimes the witnesses are nature and natural events, signs and wonders, as we're told. Sometimes they're people. When John the Baptist is approached and confronted, they ask him, "Who are you?" And he says, "I'm not Christ." He says, and he points to Jesus Christ and who he is. He's the Lamb that has come to save the world. Now there's this big picture narrative that undergirds all the smaller narratives, but even the smaller narratives. Have Have particulars that we have to pay attention to. So, to give you one example, let's say in chapter twelve, you see this scene where this Mary comes to wash the feet of Jesus—a very popular narrative that many people turn to. Now, there are certain things that we recognize there. For instance, we have the setting; it's in a place called Bethany, right outside the city of Jerusalem. We have characters involved. You have Mary and Martha. Martha is still cooking in the kitchen and getting ready for the party. Mary is the one who comes in to worship at the feet of Jesus, and we have disciples and many who are gathered. In particular, the setting tells us they're here to celebrate. Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. So you have this scene. So we do this when we tell any story. We tell the characters, we tell the scene, we tell others about what's going on in order to set the scene for the issues taking place. And then you see this kind of narrative advancing. And the crisis point is that Mary comes in and then brings this pure nard, pours it over Jesus's head and feet, and washes his feet with her hair. That's shocking to many. 
people. And we are to also feel that shock. And the way this shock is expressed is by the disciples surrounding them, where we are told that Judas Iscariot, whom John wants to remind us, by the way, this is not a good guy, because later on, this Judas will betray Jesus, comes and confronts her, simply saying, why are you doing this? He says, you could have given this money to the poor. Who can disagree with giving money to the poor? But this is where Jesus comes in to defend. And this is the crisis point, isn't it? This confrontation between Mary and her giving and devotion before Jesus. And then we have this Judas who comes in and confronts Mary and people are looking for a resolution. What's going to happen here? This is where Jesus steps in and simply says, leave her alone. She has done a good thing for us. Now, you and I could simply stop here and say, you know what? The lesson of this narrative is that we need to devote ourselves to Jesus like Mary did give up everything we have, as other Gospels tell us about it, and give up everything for Jesus. Now, is that a bad conclusion? Not necessarily. There's a lot of biblical nature to that understanding, that we are to give up our mind, our body, and our soul are to be devoted to the Lord. That's a good thing. However, is that John's primary intention in that narrative? Because in that climactic point where Jesus points out that she did a good thing, he reminds us of something that we didn't know, which is that she's preparing him for burial. That's the amazing thing about it. John is using foreshadowing to take us further to what's going to happen next. John is not satisfied in telling this story. This story has a direction. It has a prophetic intent. And the intent is, this gives us some clues about what's going to come later in the story. It foreshadows it. And what's going to come later, something that many of our listeners know very well, Jesus died. And while her act of devotion might have looked beautiful to many around them, it's about Jesus's devotion that we are all looking toward when he gives up himself and dies for us is the true extravagant devotion that the author intends for us to see. And this narrative is to point us in that direction. So you see all these skills that are there, setting of the scene, foreshadowing, this kind of division of stories to see the scene rising, the climactic, and the resolution in terms of the division of the narrative. Those are all things that the authors carefully and beautifully crafted. And we want our readers and listeners to join us in seeing both the beauty as well as the depth of the narrative being told. So we're really talking about learning how to pay more attention to Scripture. And letting the scripture itself and the author, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, through the human author, lead us to a more complete and maybe even more mature understanding of those stories that we know so well. You know what helped me a lot? You were referring back to memorizing those little cards with verses. And we did that a lot as well. In terms of having these verses that we memorize, we check each other as well. One thing that I don't think we did as much, which I think is a huge help in seeing the scripture for its whole, is listening to the audios of the Bible. These oftentimes, individual books were meant to be heard at one sitting. Even Paul's letters were proclaimed in one sitting. Even John's gospel, as we're talking about it, when you listen to all the chapters in one sitting, you will have a different appreciation for what John is doing here than atomistically dealing with one 
paragraph or sections of John. Now, don't get me wrong. I would rather have people read the one section than not to read the sections at all. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah, rather yeah. have people read one verse than not to read the verse at all. However, getting into a practice, oftentimes we drive a lot in California. Maybe others do too. Having the audio Bible go through the whole thing where you listen to the whole thing and listen to it in a sense that the author intends us to hear this as a whole story. I think you'll find that there is beauty and joy in hearing it read this way that you might not have seen right away in individual texts. And this is where we're saying that there are certain things that we can do, even with individual passages, that we can talk and think about that allows us and draw our eyes to the bigger picture taking place. Which ultimately is, as you said earlier, Christ. The focus of the stories and the story that unifies all of Scripture is Christ. How is it that Paying attention to the literature of Scripture draws one ultimately to Christ. Because we believe that all 66 books really are one book, written over time, written over various authors. But we believe that under divine authorship, if we think of this simply as human authors— human author's contribution is not to be minimized. We believe that God utilized their experiences and skills to tell the story of Jesus, but differently from time to time with different angles. And we have the four gospels for that reason, right? Four witnesses that provide us the fullest possible understanding of the life of Jesus. When you take that four gospels analogy and apply it to 66 books, here we have one divine author who oversaw the composition and writing of his book, that from Genesis to Revelation, we believe that this is one singular book with the intention of revealing who Jesus is. The Old Testament books point us to Christ, the coming Messiah of our Lord. The New Testament tells us who he is and how he lived. And even the authors that come after the death and resurrection of Jesus, their intent is to reveal and to interpret this life of Jesus. Now, while individual authors, it's overseen by one divine author, and we believe that we have an obligation of not only reading one paragraph well, not only reading one book well, but reading all 66 books as one book that tells the story of Jesus well. And that's what we hope that we can do, not only as preachers, but also as teachers. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.